Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. Now, some people may wonder, why is this important? Well, I'll tell you. In my own personal opinion, I think that society and civilizations grow in tandem with scientific developments. So by tuning into this podcast, you are being a part of the future. An informed, advanced, and hopefully peaceful future. Anyway, the point is, welcome. It is I, your humble host, Amir Fogel. And today on The Imposter, we are joined by the lovely Dr. Faika Zanjani, who is a brilliant researcher, a very, very warm and nice individual, and just a pleasure to interview and have on the podcast. So, without wasting any more time, let us begin episode number 22 with Dr. Faika Zanjani. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. The knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature you are. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of The Imposter. Today I am joined by Dr. Faika Zanjani, who is an associate professor in the Department of Behavioral and Community Health at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Her research focuses on adult health and development, as well as mental health and substance abuse in adults. Dr. Zanjani, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I thought we would start from the beginning a little mm-hmm. bit and just find out about how you actually got interested in this work. What, what brought you to it? Oh, so I've always been interested in um, research. I was, and I never even realized it. I have immigrant parents and my father's a chemist and he really wanted me to go into the hard sciences. And that was always something that I think I wanted to do or I thought I wanted to mm-hmm. do. And then... I don't know, my junior year, I just realized I had to decide where I was going and in high school. And I like meditated and I was like, you know what? One of my favorite classes is psychology. I really, really understand, like understanding behavior. And before that, I had no idea I really like behavior. I guess I decided of everything, that's what I need to do. Hmm. And I have to say my father was so upset at me when that's what I decided to do. And then... um, he was so upset at me, actually, my freshman year in college, he had a private conversation with the chair of my department. Oh, my God. Wow. To, I, and I wasn't part of it, and Dr. Ellis Honig never told me what happened, but he did say that my father had very strong <laughs> opinions, but that he was coming from a great place, but that I shouldn't worry. So I don't know what happened in that conversation. Interesting. But I always... I decided, so I've known psychology since I've been high school. I've been pursuing it since then. I kind of do health psych, more public health Mm -hmm. stuff now. But um, 
it's just something I've always been interested in. And the aging thing came from, again, my freshman year in college, I took a psych of aging course. Hmm. And at the end of every chapter, it said more research is needed in this. And again, because of my cultural heritage, which is Pakistani, there's this sense of respect for older adults and this whole idea of, I wanted to do something that would help my parents. And right. so that class just really just kept the research that was there and mm. I have this whole interest in preventive health that what can we do now to make sure that you don't have a disabled older adulthood just all intertwined together to create what I am doing now basically is this whole idea of changing health behaviors changing health whether it be an old age or younger to make sure that we can live the highest quality of life and reach our potential in that way it's very fascinating it's actually that's a great point that I think is really kind of glossed over right now, which is preventative care. Yeah. I mean, it seems that most mainstream health systems function in the sense of treating a problem mm. or disease, but it's not preventing it. And I think that focus is so important. It needs to be emphasized more. No, so, I, As you know, I'm in, I'm in the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland. And I actually, my first position at the University of Kentucky, I was also in a college of public health. And again, I didn't know that's where my focus was, but hmm. my research has naturally been public health because of this focus on prevention. I mean, public health is all about treating health problems and health conditions at the community preventive level. And they've emerged, schools of public have emerged, I think probably more so in the last two decades and now has become a more popular undergraduate major but it's one of the things that we should have been doing a long time ago. Yeah. And as you know, medicine has mostly dealt with dealing with problems and really have forgot about creating healthy lifestyles and preventing problems. We could take care of if we could somehow prevent them. I mean, just any safety guidelines, whether it be gun policies, whether it be alcohol policies, so many things can be taken care of if we do prevention. And that's just, I mean, just driving a car. There's just all these preventive practices done to make it safer. And that's the same way we should be doing to prevent the incident. That's like the, there's so much stigma around the incident and we just don't have that around health practices. You'd think we'd be able to make that jump, but. Yeah, we haven't made that jump Fingers yet. crossed. It's yeah. Coming. Okay, very interesting. So we'll, we'll move on. As mentioned before, a uh, big part of your work and you started mm -hmm. to talk about is focused on uh, mental health and alcohol and substance abuse in adults. Yeah. Are the two mutually exclusive? No, actually, what it's so hard to find somebody that drinks at, at risk levels and not have a mental health issue. It's almost, but I won't say that everybody that drinks has a mental health issue. Right. It's just really, there's a high level of correlation. But it's also to say that everybody with a mental health like issue or a symptom also doesn't have to drink. It's, it's right. just, there just seems to be a lot of coexistence in both of them. And um, it's almost to say that alcohol consumption is almost a behavioral outcome of maybe some kind of mental health impairment or right. symptoms is kind of what it is. Well, I mean, that can go on the most basic level. You know, someone has a hard day and they might exactly. have a drink and that's exactly. their way to deal with it. And them. it's legal. So right. exactly. it's different than yeah. a lot of other ways to manage mental yeah. health problems. Right. So can you tell us just a little bit of a general overview of your research? Just, yes, definitely. Uh, so again, I was very interested, I, I think my grad school essay. So I chronically like laid <laughs> out the things I wanted to do. I, so my essay was all about prevention. I wanted to know what I can do now, personally, as well as for everybody, what they mm -hmm. need to do now mm -hmm. to make sure they can reach their potential. I'm all about individual potential. I'm probably naive 
and an optimist, but you know, went all. But I just wanted to make sure that I feel like a lot of people are capable of so much and they don't allow themselves to do it. But I was interested in behavior and I feel like people can understand behavior, like mm -hmm. training a rat to do something or, or educating a human to do something seemed to be more my way to do handle things. So I went into grad school wanting to study health behavior. So while I was there, I studied exercise, I studied smoking, alcohol, nutrition, medical utilization. So I studied all these patterns across the lifespan. And my first one was looking at predictors. And it seemed like a lot of one of my strongest predictors that came out was family context that people really? in, and I should have known this, but people in like low conflict family situations have healthier behaviors. And you could understand that a little bit. I had a fight. I don't care. I don't want to wear my seatbelt. I'm not going to exercise today. I'm really upset when your emotional toil is taking you over you're not likely to practice health behaviors. So I should have known then, but I didn't. I was again right. naive. I just saw that was one of the strongest predictors. And then I did my dissertation and I looked at change. Hmm. Like what are what are people's patterns? And for the most part, people's patterns are pretty stable. Uh, young adulthood, we don't practice the best health behaviors. Um, we seem to improve more exercise as we get older, like better, healthier practices and not smoking. Like So we decline our right. negative practices. But then as soon as we get to about 60, we go down again. So we have this really? like inverted shape. Basically what I, so of course we have to write a discussion section and my conclusion was two way. One was, or maybe even three, one was the person, right? So they lived to their maximum lifespan or what they thought was like the old age lifespan. And now they could do whatever they want. Right. Right. You don't, not worrying about exercise. You're not worrying about not smoking. I you're made like, it this far. Yeah. Like... I made it this far. I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah. Okay, why would somebody think that? So I think one, I don't think older adults are getting the message at that point that they still need to be healthy. That you still need to be exercising. So I think, I thought that there needs to be a dialogue change in the community, one. The other thing, I don't think doctors are telling older adults they need to be doing X, Y, and Z because they are saying the same thing. Dude, you made it this far. Why just maintain? So I, I just feel like we were missing this whole opportunity when everybody's worried about all these health expenditures and disability in old age. Why aren't we still creating the same healthy practices in older mm -hmm. adulthood? So that's what I, I came out of there thinking that I got to change something. But then I went to do a postdoc at University of Pennsylvania in geriatric psych. And what in research, what you find, what you do is you try to look for the, like, the ultimate independent variable, right? The mm -hmm. ultimate thing that could predict something. And what I found out through my postdoc was what I should have known my first year in grad school was that if people don't feel good, they're not going to practice health behaviors. And that means they're not going to take their medication on time. They're not going to see the doctor on time if they don't feel good about themselves or they don't feel good about their prospects in the future. So my whole time there, I created this whole intervention called uh, referral management, which was basically doing motivational interviewing with patients that are coming in for a mental health or substance abuse issue to get them in the door. And the whole process was about helping them deal with their barriers, personal or community, hmm. to overcome, to make sure they attended their first appointment. Because once they attend their first appointment, we can engage them. Right. But we lose like 60 to 90% of people before that first appointment. Oh, wow. That's, that's So that was what was, I was charged to do. I was like, they were like, take care of this problem. And I was like, okay, let's take care of this problem. This is a health wow. behavior. The health behavior is they have a condition. I can't get them in the door. 
what do I need to do? So we use motivational mm -hmm. interview practice to get people in the door. And what I realized was this was with everything. Like it didn't mm -hmm. matter if exercise improves mental health symptoms. And we knew that their treatment would be better if they exercised. If they, I couldn't get them to the point like where they're not going to even come to exercise. Yeah, like the cognitive yeah. decision making or healthier decision making of somebody facing a mental health issue is just impaired. Hmm. And so I, this epiphany came to me where if I can't, like, again, you look for the ultimate thing that, right. to change. And I can make people be healthier if I could just deal with their mental health issues first. Hmm. And then talk to that population about being healthier. Again, like the older adults, I realized that a po that population was kind of kept away from the healthy messages. Okay, it's just about getting better, not having depression anymore or not feeling anxious anymore. But let's also talk to the population about how to be healthier. Because during that time that they're having their episode, they're not taking care of their health. They're not taking, you know, outside of taking medication and showing up at the doctor, they're not doing the three hours of exercise a week. Right. They're not uh, making sure they don't smoke. They're just looking at survival at that point and making sure that they get to their job on time and making sure their family conflict is low. They're just thinking about the triangle of life needs. They're just worrying about survival of yeah. every day and making sure they have money. They're not really about worry about enhancing their quality of life. So it was like crazy for me to be <laughs> there and to understand all that. And I was like, oh, so there's this whole setup. And so since then, I've been very interested in creating public health knowledge on this. But also, again, when I was working at the geriatric psych postdoc, I was working in a clinical setting. So people that were coming to see the doctor. I was also working in the VA setting. Um, oh, interesting. So alcohol problems, mental health problems, all yeah. that stuff. I was doing referral management with them. Oh, wow. And for them, I thought it was really interesting because once you get in the door, it's like it's the way the universal health care should be set up. So a lot the VA I was working at in Philadelphia, like you went to see your primary care doctor like on the first floor. Psychiatric unit would be on the fifth floor. So it'd be like within the, it all wouldn't the be, same yeah, all in the same building. It wouldn't be like, go get a referral and go there and set. It would be like, they would, could make an appointment for you right there. And you could potentially see them the same day, even though we know the wait times are out of control right now. Right. But, um, so as far as the barrier, the normal barriers that people have to time and to location were eliminated in that population. And this was already a population of high risk. So they're having trouble getting in. I can only imagine what it was like. So I realized that, that hmm. I was only reaching people that the clinicians have actually reached. There was a whole segment of population that never even get themselves in the door. So when I left, I became very interested in the community population. Hmm. So what what were some of the ways in which you would try and bring these people that, you know, you said it was 69% that wouldn't even come to yeah. the first appointment. I mean, how do you reach out to those people? So, so everything we did was telephone based. So that made it one easier. So it wasn't like we had to talk to them face to face. We so they created an appointment. So the way I, the, my referral management was done in Philadelphia was they had their appointment set up and VA is required to do a depression screening mm -hmm. yearly. And in that depression screening, if they were tagged as needing care, an appointment was set up for them right there, oh, wow. right there on the spot. So this is what I talk about, the ideal system. Like, could you imagine going to your primary care doctor and them saying, oh, you have a health issue or, oh, you have this issue. I'm setting you up an appointment before you leave today. Right. So you know where you're doing. So they, the so idea. they go to the primary care doctor. They have this annual screen. This thing pops up on their computer. Oh, the doctor says, oh, you need your annual mental health screen. Let's do that. Which is, first of all, would be wonderful. It'd be great. We could all do this. <laughs> 
it's, it's a, it would be a universal screen. So this is how nice it's set up. So they have the universal screen. Anybody's screen's positive, gets an appointment set up right away. And where I worked was the behavioral health lab. And for people that had the first time appointments, our lab was was um, alerted that this new person is having a first time appointment. We need to do a screening to, to understand what their symptoms are before they even went. So we did like a clinical assessment mm -hmm. before they even made it to their first appointment to wow. figure out what is the symptoms that are bothering them the most. So now all of a sudden, even a bit, could you imagine like before you went to your doctor, if all the laboratory tests were done, yeah. so they knew exactly what they were dealing with instead of focusing on that first appointment to figure out what you're dealing with. Again, beautiful system. I was going to say. I mean, I was really, I mean, th this is the beauty of academics. You can set it up sometimes to be perfect. And then when you can apply it in the world, which they did, this was research done at the University of Pennsylvania, and they applied it in the VA system there. So all of a sudden, research turns into clinical practice, which I didn't understand. That's how clinical practice happens, but that's exactly how clinical practice it's pretty happens. pretty cool, though. It was so, such an epiphany for me. So what I did, so what they found was between that appointment and that screening, we were losing people. This huge segment, almost like 50%, if not more, at least. They were like, okay, how do we fix this? And that's where I came in. They already did motivational interviewing in that lab, in, my, in the behavioral health lab for right. alcohol issues and out drug issues. Okay. So I was like, let's take the same principle and let's apply it to the barrier being getting to your point. Hmm. So the goal in there is to reduce alcohol, right? The, or the goal there is to reduce depression, what they were already doing. So now the goal is to get to your appointment. So the frame is just switched to um, that is the outcome as opposed right. to let's improve your drinking or let's improve your depression. So I got so the way I got people were people got their first appointment, they were screened, we knew what their symptoms were, and now all of a sudden before their first appointment, I had that window where I can call them and be like, you have an appointment coming up, I want to help you prepare for that appointment. Let's uh, talk about how you're going to get there. That's a great little in yeah, to. Like... I want to prepare you for your appointment and make sure you get there because that's the best way to help your health. And let's see how we're going to do it. And just have that phone conversation. And it's just set up like a phone conversation. Are you going to make it? Yes. Is there any reason you couldn't make it? Well, there could be this. Okay, let's say this happens, that your ride fails. Where, what happens? So let's problem solve. What happened? What will you do to make sure you can overcome that? Right. So you already What's have them. Yeah. yeah. So you have them problem solve through everything. So by the end, they're not only agreeing, but they know exactly how they're going to get there, which... I mean, we don't do. Yeah, I think that's so important as well, mm -hmm. especially these days where not only do physicians, they don't have the time, but they, they don't spend the time either because mm -hmm. they don't have the time to really meet with patients anyway. So they, there's a lot of the, oh, let's run through all the stuff all over again really briefly instead of, oh, I already have this sheet in front of me that tells me what you know, is going on with you specifically so we can cut out the beginning bits. And, and that's get... the other beauty of the VA system. Everything is computerized. So any patient from across the country, you could almost see. Wow. So the screening, like I didn't, we didn't have to send it to the new doctor. It was, they just pulled up their file and it just showed up. See, I don't, I just don't understand why all health systems can't be upgraded. Like, no. You'd think in this day and age, like. Yeah, you'd think. But I mean, the VA is having their own problems. But yes. Yeah. The system was set up so the physicians can do their job and not have to worry about the logistics. Right. And. That's where I did. So so I did that work in Philadelphia. And then when I went to Kentucky, I wanted to work, see if it would work in a non-VA population. It did. Hmm. We had an outpatient clinic connected with the University of Kentucky Medical School, the site clinic. People made their first stop appointments. I got their names. I called them, made sure they came up, improved the rates like tenfold. Wow. And then wow. figured out it still worked. You know, I, I have to say, 
I think something that's overlooked a lot of times, and and I think it is a lot in public health, um, is the approach of stuff. And so, you your approach, the way you say, oh, how can I help you prepare? Mm -hmm. That is so it's subtle, but it's really it hits the nail on the head. Where you're not telling someone, oh, you know, like. I don't, you're stupid or, or you're unprepared or you're disorganized. You know, you're not giving any sort of implication of that to the individual. You're saying, oh, yeah, you're yourself and I'm just here to help you. I mean, it might sound a bit ridiculous or redundant when I'm no, explaining now, but I, I do but think that is just... But that's exactly, I think, if you think about the best doctors that you had or the best people that have been in your life, they, they're really there to help your health. Yeah. They're not really, I mean, the person in there that looks at you like a non-human is not going to help you. Right. The one that wants to understand your story and where, how they can fit in that. I mean, actually the whole motivational interviewing process is about that. You started off with asking somebody about their goals and then you mm -hmm. create all change based on their individual goals. So if somebody says, you know, I want to make sure my goals in life and not even your goals after you get treated, your goal in life is how it starts is to make sure I make it to my daughter's wedding, to make sure I'm financially mm -hmm. secure. And then you tie everything into that. Like, you know, this will actually really help you make sure you get to your daughter's wedding because we'll help you in this process and help you get better, help you help yourself get better. Right. And then you will actually obtain the goals. And that's, that's what it's all about. Like, I think I never wanted to do intervention research because I really thought, what kind of knowledge do I have to tell somebody what to do? Yeah, it's tricky. And then I realized in my postdoc, I'm like, all clinical practice is a bunch <laughs> of mini research projects that people have tried and made effective. I can try, and I'll only implement what's effective. And all of a sudden, it just, it just, it just changed. And huh. then it just, I don't know, just talking to people in general. I mean, you really, again, the best doctors are the ones that want to help you obtain your goals, not just the ones that want to treat the condition. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, you want a healthy baby? I'll help you get the healthy baby. You want to be independent in old age? I'll help you get there. Right. Let's map it out together. Exactly. You got to work together, mm -hmm. but you also keep keep to the goals. So yeah. it's very important. All right. So this might sound like a silly question, mm -hmm. but I think it, it actually might be important to define uh, just before we continue, but what what is an adult? I mean, there are different stages of adult. Mm -hmm. I should say there's you know young, middle aged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so. so in the again, a lot of my work has been identified identifying age groups. So in the Seattle Longitudinal Study, that's where I did my graduate work. My research was across the lifespan. So we in that sample we had people from 22 to 96 or plus, and of course we had to identify age groups. And one of the best ways is to just took the population and, you know, divide them up into fours. Right. But it seems that based on what the literature says and what we found is that adulthood is like any time like 18 to 20-ish going all the way up to like about age 40 to 45 is what we're saying. And we think that is the young adulthood as we consider. Hmm. Most most studies consider it. it could, and there's a deviations five plus here or there. Right. And it depends on if they're doing four age groups or if it depends on if they're doing two or something. But we think about sure. 20 to 45 is about young adulthood. And then about 45 to about 65, we think of middle age. Again, that's again if you do a four. Like if you just want to, if you just divide the age, like if you do a dichotomy, mm -hmm. it's everybody that's 50 plus versus older than 50 is a good way to see. I mean, health really changes after 50. Mm -hmm. Nothing really changes before then. But if you're looking at prevention, 
that phase, that 40 to 50 phase is so important because you're setting somebody up for that facing any health conditions they're going to face at 50. So I like to actually do my work around 50. Hmm. Your risks kind of show up. So I'm approaching 40 this year. And I'm really in that stage where I'm like, I wonder what's going to emerge. Like, is my cholesterol going to... Because this is when it happens. If it happens before then, it's usually a genetic thing happening. If it happens after 40, it's usually behavioral. Like, what kind of based on the lifestyle I'm living, what is actually going to emerge? Like, is my blood pressure going to show up? Is my cholesterol going to show up? Mm-hmm. You're always kind of wondering what's going to kind of happen. And the 40, I always think the 40 to, I even think 60 is too late, but the 40 to 50 is like the great prevention time mm-hmm. to try to figure out, you know, what are people's risk profiles? What can we kind of change to make sure they're set up really well? Right. So older adulthood, we really think starts at like 65. Hmm. That's when... People feel that way. Social Security defines it as such. Your AARP comes yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> AARP comes in at 50, actually. Oh, really? As soon as you turn 50, kind of shows up at your door. They get that They kind of get that right that, there. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So about 65, though, we really think, you know, somebody is really probably in the old age phase. But what research has really said that once you're 65, you, you're like, no, I'm not old. People really never identify themselves right. as old. Um and then there's this old, old phage, which is basically what I've seen is always identified as anything beyond the average longevity. So about after 75, hmm. it's basically considered the old, old age. Like we've had growth in centenarians, which is people older than 100, like over the past like decade increase. So the population yeah. is growing. But that 75 plus is really considered like our golden age. Our old, old adults, everything that's going to happen has happened at that point other things that are happening also at that point is the benefits of medical treatment don't necessarily outweigh the frailty that's happening at that age. So it's a different phase. Like it's still at 60 to 75. Treatments work. You could change things. You could still change behavior. Improvements in behavior can seen throughout the lifespan. But mm. as far as medical treatment, 75 is kind of the stage where you kind of question the benefits versus the outcomes. Right. Because on average, at so you've reached your maximum lifespan then on average. I always say to college students, they can learn to manage their cardiovascular risk factors. They should really be expecting to live to about 100. I mean, we're set up that way. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, I mean, and the thing about cardiovascular risk factors, at, at just one point. Is no, 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 please. Yeah. It prevents everything. Our leading causes of death in every way. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, obesity, smoking, high blood pressure, cholesterol, Leading risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, leading risk factors really? for diabetes. It's if the best way to prevent anything <laughs> dying from any of those <laughs> chronic conditions is exercise and a good diet. Cardio. Is, it, is, so is cardiovascular? Is, is that the bioindicator? Kind basically, of the, the yes. First circulation. Kind of it's all about healthy circulation. Right. Diabetes is about healthy circulation. We know with cancer, even though it's not caused, we know it's accelerated by poor cardiovascular risk factors. Alzheimer's disease, biggest risk factors are cholesterol problems, high blood pressure. These are all things that hmm. kind of work out. Now, why would somebody get Alzheimer's versus cardiovascular disease? It, I mean, one is the degree of severity. And the other thing is genetics, I was right? Say, yeah. Like if you have a history of cardiovascular disease, you're more likely to get the cardiovascular outcome. Yeah. But if you keep living past all those things, you'll eventually get an Alzheimer's disease or you'll eventually hmm. get something else. So it's an interplay of genes and environment and just kind of like behavioral management. But what we've noticed, the research constantly says that behavioral change can overcome any genetic risk factor. 
if we can do it and and by genetical change we're talking about exercise if we could just get people to move there's this whole idea of prevent alzheimer's disease with mental exercises Mm -hmm. no it's actually prevent alzheimer's with exercise just move get the circulation going there's so much to be said about just moving and and this is self-applied i really need to exercise more (laughs) exercise is the key and we just don't do it well, it, it's, it's interesting because I've read a little bit and I've listened to other podcasts actually talking about the same thing. But, you know, the chemical reactions, the endorphins that are produced, the hormones that are produced to release during exercise. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it that a lot of processes that go on in your body are instigated by physical activity. Circulate, it's just about circul- clear circulation yeah. or circulation. The best preventive health plan for every person, including every American, is to give everybody a gym membership to a good quality gym. So environmental factors taking out. Give everybody a yearly, a monthly massage. And give everybody a monthly, once a month, for an hour, a mental health-like counseling session. I'd vote you in. I mean, you just do all these things and you could take care of so many issues. Stress management, um, relaxation. I mean, meditation. I mean, there's been so many benefits of it, just getting people to zone in and focus. And you, even if the, even if meditation isn't for you, mindfulness. I mean, yeah, there's so anything. many other avenues you can. You just and we're not talking about every day, except for exercise. Every day you need to be moving at yeah. least a half an hour a day. Just get every day you should be moving. Live an active lifestyle. Right. We should really be living. I love walking friendly. I love that now. Um, houses are rated by their walkability. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, like I, I recently was, was on either Redfin or Zillow, one of those, and they had a walkability scale. Huh. And, of course, urban ur- urban dwellings would have a higher walkability. But right. that's really – I think, like, cities are great for older adults because, you know, they don't have to rely on driving and they could walk, walk to wherever yeah. they need to be. I mean, we really need more walking environments. But a lot of people say, especially in rural environments and unsafe environments, that walk, exercise is not – it's just not feasible because there's just – it's a safety issue. But, you know, if, if we make that a public health goal that every community, just like we've given every community a school, give every community that opportunity for physical activity, we could really take care of a lot. And I'm not saying that I have the key to everything. No, but it's... But I think we could see a lot of changes. Like, yeah. spend money there, just like we know we spend our tax dollars in our school because that improves so many indicators. Spend money here. All this violence. I mean, I don't even want to. I teach a women's health course, and I feel like you you see like are leading poor health indicate like violence and all these things can be taken care of if we really started early on and having no tolerance for inactivity, no tolerance for violence. You know, mm-hmm. if we do that stress management, if you do that meditation, like we really take it's all the stress outcome. Kind of take care of these things. Maybe things would be different well you know i i would be very up for the idea of like an adult playground that sounds like a lot of fun oh my god like really so i have a a six-year-old and a four-year-old and we've had so many jumping parties and all the adults say the same thing like one of the biggest things is if we go to a jump place is adults are allowed too so bring your socks so we all get super excited but we're like could you imagine like a bar with a jumping place i know it would be so much even though liability would be off the charts you probably have to sign a waiver when you go in but but... like i like it would be so great yeah oh it would be so much fun i mean it would just be so much fun i think also it's the way things are phrased like 
I, I had this epiphany the other day, actually, where I was trying to be more conscious about also doing activity and stuff like that. And, you know, people, when you have to walk your dog, if you have a dog, you have to walk your dog. And people get really kind of like dreary, but they're like, oh, i got to go walk the dog. But if Dog have, owners are healthier. Well, but that's what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. If you just switch the mentality, instead of being, you know, forcing yourself to go outside and doing mm-hmm. it, even if, you know, it is helping you out. If you say, okay, I'm actually going to go on a walk and I'm going to take my dog instead of I need to take my dog on a walk. If you just change the way you approach the way you walk every day or whenever yeah. you walk your dog, you know. Like, and there's evidence for that. I mean, dog owners are healthier for the and one is the compa- you know, the companionship. But the end is the physical activity that yeah. people get that people don't get when they don't have a dog. You play with the dog, that. you walk the I mean yeah. It's just that makes so sense. much fun. I mean, it's just crazy. All right, everybody, that is our show for today. Don't forget to tune in next week to hear part two of this interview with Dr. Zanjani. Uh, And trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. It is very fascinating. So tune in next week, and let's do our usual roundup. Don't forget to like and share The Imposter on Facebook, Twitter, at Another Fogel, and SoundCloud. You can also find us on the iTunes Music Store under the keywords the imposter podcast i know it's a lot to remember uh last little bit don't forget to tell all your friends family colleagues anyone you think that might benefit or enjoy the imposter podcast and listening to my voice crack occasionally and that is about it we will see you next week have a lovely fourth of july weekend for those of you that are not in the united states have a great weekend in general Um, For those of you that are in England, I won't be too mean because, you know, you're all reeling still from the Brexit vote. But (laughs) just don't forget that we whooped your ass, you know, 1776 USA. Goddamn redcoats. Anyway. All right, everyone. We will see you next week. Tune in for part two of the interview with Dr. Zanjani. And have a great weekend. All right. Peace out.